folks, and welcome to the TKW Podcast. I'm Matt Spendley, and I'm joined today by Kyle Maggio. Uh, I missed a hell of a game last night, man. I know. So we're recording this on Saturday afternoon to drop on Monday. So Kyle was so gracious and went on a date night with his wife and missed an incredibly exciting game until the end. So, Kyle, were the noodles worth it? Um, th- they were, in fact, worth it. And I'd like to go on record and apologize because this loss is um, solely... It's on my hands here. Um, I intentionally didn't watch the game. Obviously, it was on a date night, and we came back from the date, stopped in. We were going to go back out, and I was like, I got a few minutes. This seems like an exciting game per my Twitter feed, so I am going to turn it on for a few minutes. And I turned it on, and all hell broke loose in the three minutes that I had it on. I felt really, really terrible. I shut it off. I tweeted that I jinxed it, and I was sorry. Uh, Kevin Durant didn't seem to care about that as he continued his bloodbath in the garden. And the Knicks blew what was an incredibly competitive and fun game. And it somehow turned into a almost 30-point loss So because of the Warriors. So, um, yeah. So, A, the, the noodles were worth it. And, B, I'm really, really, really sorry because this is entirely my fault. So, we moved past blaming me for the Knox injury to now blaming you for this loss. So it's just going to keep going back and forth. So the next bad thing is on me, I guess. Correct. Okay. Correct. Good to know. Good to know. I don't think I've ever seen an NBA game flip as quickly as this one did in the fourth quarter. It was one of the most incredible turn of events that I've seen. And obviously we saw it coming because it's the Warriors. But all of a sudden you look up and the Knicks are losing by 28. They were leading in the fourth quarter at one point. They were only down five. And all of a sudden, 28-point game to close out thanks to Kevin Durant scoring 25 points in his future home of MSG. It was an absolute bloodbath that the Warriors put on the Knicks, and it's one of the craziest, craziest covers I've ever seen. The line was 12, by the way, which is, I think, what I said when we talked about it on Wednesday. So I had that nailed. But So you watched the game again this morning to to catch up on the whole thing. So what are some initial takeaways that you had – uh, what did we see from the Knicks last night that was encouraging? You know what? Actually, let's start out first with the lineup choices because that's where Fizz came in and made a huge switch, deciding to start Vonley Robinson, Neil Akina, Dotson, Hardaway instead of the Thomas Cantor Burke triumvirate we had, Vonley Robinson, Dotson. So a huge, huge switch, starting Frank and point guard. So let's start there. What did you see from those lineups? Did you like the choice initially? And what are some thoughts on that? So uh, I'll, I'll be pretty quick here. So a couple things. I, obviously, I was in favor of Frank being slid back to the one, Burke coming off the bench. That's something that um, us, a lot of Knicks fans, agreed on and, and thought was the most logical thing, not just for Frank and his development, but for Burke to be successful. But to me, that made all the sense in the world. Perfectly, totally on board with that. And we sort of expected it after the Miami game. Um, as much of a Lance stand that I am, I also acknowledge that he hasn't been great uh, through the first five games here. So him coming off the bench in favor of uh, a Vonley, I thought, again, was a, a fine move. Vonley's been very impressive. We've talked about that a few times. You've been very interested in uh, Noah Vonley. So Remain that, interested. My interest so, is so, so two out of two for me. You and I have both been – not. I wouldn't say out on Robinson at all, but we've been out on him starting and, and eating a big chunk of minutes, um, playing against starting units. And I didn't think he was quite ready for that. And again, as much as we give Ennis Kanter shit for his defending, um, there's a ton of value in what he's able to do in, in terms of scoring the ball at his position and in terms of the rebounding that he typically provides. And I just figured that and this and that was me tweeting from the Knicks wall account yesterday, kind of bashing that part of it. Mm-hmm. So I'll I I own that because I didn't think that was a wise move. Um and I and I, I don't know if this is going to be a one game lineup or not in terms of Robinson starting. I could see the other guys like Von Ley and Frank staying in now, but um, 
I think my initial reaction was it was a bad idea for Robinson. And my after watching the game, uh, I was pretty clearly wrong on that, at least for this matchup. Robinson really fit in well with the athleticism and the pace of the game. And Cantor looked pretty abysmal and uncomfortable. But in terms of just the, the starting, I think Fizz had it right, at least for what he was trying to do. And I don't know if this, again, if it was a matchup, you know, uh, a night-by-night basis thing that he's going to do with some of the tweaks or if this is he's going to ride with this for a little while longer. But um, as people who kind of try to throw a wet blanket on, on the Mitchell Robinson thing, I really liked what I saw at him. Uh, out of him last night but what were your initial thoughts on the starting lineup yeah to Robinson I think the Robinson Cantor thing is a perfect instance of why we watch the games right if you look at the box you probably say wow Cantor 8 and 13 in 20 minutes Cantor was brutal last night he really just wasn't all that effective he had a nice little stretch with him and Hazonia playing a two-man game that was basically it and Robinson for all of his deficiencies we know that he's just a ball of energy when he's on the court So he's active. His hands are active on defense. He runs around. He's running the lane. He's filling in everywhere across the court. He still needs to learn, and I don't think he should be playing, you know, 30 minutes here on out. But I do think that this is a one-off lineup. Like, I think that you're going to see this same lineup. I think Cantor re-enters for Robinson against the Nets. That's That's what I would guess. I have no information. That's my guess. But I think there's no reason why you don't start Dotson again because he's shown that he can score, and we know he's a good rebounder at the position. He gives you more floor spacing. He provides some shooting that Lance Thomas simply hasn't. He just, Lance Thomas has just been very, very quiet, and teams do not exactly respect him from three, so he's not really stretching out the floor that much. Dotson's much more dynamic, and Dotson's also a physical defender, too. We know this. For all of Thomas's good defensive traits, Dotson certainly is no slouch on that end. But with Vonley, too, I just really enjoyed Vonley. He's another guy. He's, we know about his rebounding prowess. Low-key, a pretty good passer, and makes an effort to always be around the rim and protect the rim, which is kind of what they need. We saw him have a great block yesterday. His hands are active on defense, and he allows more lineup versatility. He's a guy that you can play next to uh, a Cantor or a Robinson. We saw Noah Vonley hit a corner three yesterday, which was absolutely gorgeous. Sign me up for that. He shot a lot of threes on the Bulls last year, a lot more than he had for his career up to that point. And he was a three-point shooter at Indiana. He shot, I think, over 40% on limited attempts back at college. And obviously that's a long time ago now. But when we talk about Fizz's lineup choices, I think we need to talk before we even get into anything else about the fourth quarter. Because his choice to not bring Frank in and leave Mario Hazonia out there to close the beginning of the fourth quarter, basically when the Warriors went on the run, is the most indefensible thing he's done as head coach thus far. The Knicks were still going to lose. It it didn't matter. But there was no reason at all to have Zonia out there in that scenario. If he's this keep what you kill, if he's saying you're going to earn what you get, how did Frank do anything less than earn those minutes in crunch time against the best team in the NBA on a Friday night with the bright lights shining down? Why was he not in the game? And he comes back in with like six or five minutes left. At that point, the game's already over. That was supremely frustrating to me, and we saw that reflected in how we were talking about the game, and we saw that in our mentions, too. That was just very, very tough for me, and I think I've made this clear, too, on this program. I like what Fizz preaches. I think it's all good. He's made a couple choices that I haven't been crazy about. I don't think I'm as over the moon for him as some other Knicks fans, but I haven't loved some of his lineup choices, and this was one that is basically unforgivable I just didn't understand why it happened and it was stressful that that's that's what I have to say about that part of it yeah and I really agree and you know I'm pretty high on Fizdale and I and I actually and it, you know despite the cautious optimism and the whole you know I got to see it on the court thing as a whole it's lined up with what he's been saying so I've been pretty happy with him as a you know in the grand scheme through the first six games here but yeah, the the Frank thing was puzzling. Obviously, that's when I tuned in last night and then I watched the remainder of the game today, but I didn't quite understand it. Now, had had Hazonia been balling, obviously, it, it would make sense, but Frank was balling. And not just offensively. You know, he, he was actually pretty stout defensively as well. He's playing Steph and, and Clay about as well as you could on a lot of those possessions. And um, 
I just don't understand why when the game started to flow that way, why he would ride with the unit that he did. It just didn't. And I understand, like, usually when you're the coach, you leave in a unit that's doing pretty well. So they were flowing pretty well at the end of the third. And then I early fourth, I just they still had the lead. But I, I didn't see any reason why you would have any faith in that lineup. And then. Uh, yeah, to your point, I mean, the game was out of hand when Frank came back in, so I just don't know why you'd wait that long. He had multiple instances to bring him back in. I just didn't see. Um, to me, it reminded me, so, and again, it's not the same, and I don't want to make it the same, but Hornacek had like a really short leash with Frank last year, and I kind of got, and it didn't seem that way at all through the first three quarters, but then I couldn't see why you wouldn't just let him back into the game like i there's no there's no good reason for it I, I just still i still can't wrap my head around it i mean he's playing great he's playing on both ends he's finally being aggressive look at a score there was zero doubt on, on a lot of these uh possessions that he was scoring on that he was going to shoot like and that's something we never see from him and he was athletic enough to stay in this game too and make an impact as he did in the first three quarters i just don't it makes little sense. It, it makes really little sense. That's probably the biggest, but you know, just echoing your sentiment, that's probably the biggest mistake that he's made so far. And again, it's the Warriors, and they still probably lose because Kevin Durant went apeshit, but they just, it, it kind of, it was a downer on, on a really exciting game. Yeah. You know, a lot of the young guys stepped up, and it was just really uh, a bit of a downer to, to end it that way. Like, they were going to lose anyway. I of understand course. that. And they're probably going to lose. They're probably going to lose by double digits. But to see, just to allow it to get that out of hand, and and not step in when when you have some of the resources to do so in a Frank and some of the other guys, I just didn't like that at all. But uh, it was gross. It was yeah, gross. and none of us have delusions about Frank winning the game for the Knicks or something like that. Like odds are not, not, yeah, not in favor of that happening. But it's still. It's the first time he scored double-digit points all year. He's knocking down threes. He has that really nice spin move in the paint where he hits down the fall-away jumper. Had a nice drive to, to score his 17th point, which ties his career high. It was frustrating. And it's an addition by subtraction to think because I think is awful. I think he's been awful all season. I don't think he's been any sort of beneficial part of this team so far. I hope that changes, but he's also just, he's not shot well. He's not shot the three well at all, which is one thing that I was hoping he could provide on the bench. You know, he's shooting 26% from three. So those choices were were troublesome. And Kevin Durant was going to win this game no matter what happened. Frank Nielakina could have scored 35 points and it wouldn't have mattered because KD said, I'm going to go win this game for my team right now. 25 points in the fourth quarter. Just went absolutely bananas to rip the hearts out of the Knicks. But, I mean, I guess this is another one of those games that we'll talk about all season where the Knicks hung around, they ended up losing, which is probably for the best. But their young players gained some much-needed experience, and they have some takeaways that they can look at from a game like this and say, what do we need to do better, and what can we do to progress as a team? No, I, I agree. Um, yeah, I mean, the main things the main things that I saw in this game was, you know, obviously Robinson was fun, Vonley was fun, but... Um, now we're starting to see a lot of the young guys step up in different games. Like we saw Trier in a couple of the early games. Dotson's coming on strong now. Frank came on strong last night. So just a couple quick bits with Frank, like I had mentioned. You know, he looked he looked really aggressive last night, which was fun. Um, I, I liked how confident he was. Not just we've seen him shoot shots, more shots in some games, but last night he actually looked confident. Um, looked like they were trying to get him going offensively. There was one specific possession I have in mind where. Timmy and Robinson set these double screens on the top left side of the wing. And which they love to do now. Like, that's Fizdale's play. They do that yeah, all the time. Which, which is great. That's always going to get you a shot. Always. Yep. Like, getting through two screens is getting somebody a shot. If they overplay the ball handler, you have either somebody rolling to the rim and then somebody flaring out. Or you just have, what well, this specific instance was Frank wide the fuck open for a three. And the best part was, he didn't come around. You know, sometimes he'll... He'll come around those, and he slows yeah. up, and he kind of plays with the ball for a second and then decides to shoot. Mm-hmm. He just comes right around, and he was dribbling with his left hand you know, on the right side. So he had to sit there. So he squares up immediately, pulls up, drills a three. 
Like, those are the signs that we should be looking for. It doesn't matter if he's hitting threes. It matters to me more how he's hitting those threes and being confident and stepping right up into it. Like, as soon as he got around the screen, he knew, I'm shooting this three, and then he did exactly that. And so speaking to me, of threes, you know what he's shooting from three this year? Please tell me because I actually didn't look. 38%. It's probably pretty, that's very 38% good. 38% on four attempts. I mean, that's not a small amount of attempts, and it's been six games now. We've said on here forever that we think Frank can be a good three-point shooter. If he can stay at 35% this year, that would be absolutely fantastic. I mean, last year he was 32%, I believe. Yeah, I'll look it up just to make sure, but I think he was right around there. No, I just pulled it up. 31.8%. Yeah, all right. Yeah. So, so, but he was shooting, you know, half an attempt. Or, sorry, two attempts, and he was making half an attempt. So, I mean, he's shooting double that now. I mean, he's... He's trying it out. They're letting him rip on it. His field goal percentage is up. His three-point percentage is up. Um, I mean, you were highest on his form since we drafted him, basically, even before you know I had come around on it or you know Anthony, anybody had come around on his form. Um, I know you were pretty high on just his his shot, how it looked as a whole. Yeah, so you could tell that. when you watched him play in France, you could tell that he knew what he was doing, and he's just a young guy still trying to get all of the mechanics going, but his form has always been nice and he has the look of a good three point shooter. Yeah. So I, obviously I hope that maintains. And one thing that I said in our uh, preseason, you know, our regular season primer was that I think it'd be just a significant leap for Frank. If he's averaging 10 points a game, you know, I don't remember if I said anything about assists, but I remember I said 10 points a game and then this level of defense. And then on a night like last night, You see, like, if he's getting into double digits for points and playing that kind of defense, and again, it's not going to show up in the box score because the Warriors are ridiculous and Steph is ridiculous, but that first half, he played Steph tough. Like, he was on him outside of two inbounds plays that he kind of got spun around and lost on, but a lot of the transition sets, the half-court sets, Frank was really just on him. I mean, there was one play that, in particular, where Steph went left, Frankie stuck with him, uh, Steph went to do that little high floater off the glass, and then Frank went to play the high float so that he, you know, Steph scooped, went up and under, and yep. still got it to go. And that's okay because nobody's going to be able to guard those things sometimes from Steph Curry or any of the elite point guards in the league. But the fact that, you know, for 95% of that play, 95% of that drive, that Frankie's able to stick with and guard it perfectly, that's great. There was also that, uh, that one possession where he got stuck on Kevin Durant. And Kevin Durant tried to go baseline and and fade and hit the jumper. And Frank stuck with him again. So being able to provide that level of defense against the best team in the league. I mean, it was on display against the best team in the league, but he's doing this nightly. If he's just able to score 10 measly points a game, and he's almost there. He's creeping up now. He's at 8.3 points per game. Now he's getting about eight more minutes a game than he did last year. He's shooting 40.4% from the field. I don't have his true shooting or field goal percentage numbers up, but he's shooting you know, almost 38% uh, from deep now. He's shooting better from the line by a couple percentage points. So, I mean, as a whole, we're seeing his game grow through six games because it's a small sample size theater here. But to me, what's the telltale signs are just him being more aggressive this year, more often than he was last year. Last year, he would be aggressive like, what, one every 10 games or so? And then we'd be like, oh, that was fun, those seven points that we got from Frank tonight. And then he'd score two the next night or the next couple of nights. Like, he's consistently looking for a shot now. And I just really, really hope that that maintains. It's the little things that matter, too. You watch in the first couple games, Clyde has mentioned this on the broadcast. Clyde and Breen have both mentioned this. And we've tweeted this. You'll see Frank against the Nets makes a shot and then he screams, let's go. Frank misses a layup, gets upset about something, and he screamed like, fuck. Those little things matter. We didn't see that from him last year. And I think that is a mentality change. It's a mentality shift. And it's something that Fisdale has probably helped Spurn put a different mindset in for a guy like Frank, saying, listen, play with more aggressiveness. This is who you are. This is who you can be. We love what you can do for us out there on the floor. You're clearly our best point guard. There's not a close second. This is the person you are. This is the player you are. Commit yourself to this. Be the guy. It's just really encouraging, man. And I know we didn't really make a whole lot of it when uh, Burke got the starting nod to start the year. Uh, The same reason we didn't go berserk when Moutier got that start in the preseason. It just seems like 
and I don't want to read into this too early because it was one game with Frank at the one, but it seems like um, Fisdale's giving those older guys an opportunity to prove that they should be starting or that they should be in some sort of a bigger expanded role. And if they underwhelm, he's not afraid to pull them back. And I don't think Burke's super underwhelmed, to be quite honest. I know his his shooting numbers have regressed predictably. And I know you were, you know, beating that drum the entire summer and people didn't want to hear it. But um, his field goal percentage is way down. It was hey, inevitable. The, it's it's yeah, just the way it is. One thing that I – because I don't want to ever sit here and sound like we're we're just standing for Frank and then bashing Burke because we do root for Burke and of we course. want him to succeed. Of course. I'm going to give him the credit where it's due where I don't – I still don't think he's a starting level point guard, but he has adapted his game a little bit more. He's clearly willing to shoot more threes this year. And when he's getting a lot of these passes and he finds himself wide open, instead of you know taking that extra dribble and, and, and sort of prolonging – the inevitable, which is him taking the shot anyway, he's just squaring up. I th- he had a couple of corner threes in Miami. He had a, or no, sorry, one corner three in Miami. But then we saw that same thing last night against the Warriors. So it's just he's actually catching and shooting now as opposed to I got to do something off the dribble and create and drive. So I give him that credit. But at the, at the end of the day, I just think that helps him more for that bench role and, and being the sixth man. So I like what I've seen from him in terms of how he's trying to score this year versus how he's played as a whole, where he's been kind of a net negative because he's been inefficient and he hasn't played good defense. And outside of that Milwaukee game, he's not really moving the ball all that well. So I I give him that credit and I do like Burke and I want him to succeed. And honestly, like if he can turn himself into a bona fide sixth or seventh man off the bench and just be a bench scorer, like that's, that's a guy that's worth holding on to in that role because he's capable of taking care of the ball too. But, I mean, just watching them last night against a, a really competitive team, a, a really the, the best team in the world right now, and seeing Frank kind of be able to go toe-to-toe both on offense and on defense with those guys, like, to me, that should leave no doubt in your mind. And that's not, this isn't to say I'm sold on Frank doing this every fucking night because he's not going to, but when when you see the impact that you get out of Frank every every night so far this season. And no matter the role that they put him in, they put him in the three, they put him in the two, they put him at the one, and he's just plugging away doing his thing. It's just, to me, there's no competition anymore. But I do appreciate that Fizdale gave him the opportunity to try it. He gave him the first, what, five games to yeah. go out there and start. And I, I don't think he was, again, I, I stand by, I don't think he was miserable at it despite his ineffectiveness. But, you know, it's just not there. It's just not there, and it's okay. But I, I do like that Fizz is sort of going through the process of it. Like, okay, you know, here, Moutier gets a shake. Burke's going to get a shake. Frank's going to get a shake. And to me, that's staying true to the keep what you kill thing. That That's giving you, look, I, not only did I think you earned it, I then gave you your opportunity, and then you underwhelmed, and then, you know what, somebody else is playing good, and he's going to step up and get that spot. And if he's going to hold guys accountable like that, then I like that. I still don't think that it was consistent with the fourth quarter call, but I liked it. And speaking of that, segue. Yes. What do you say about uh, the Damian Dotson situation? Because I am enamored. One thing about Burke before we move on, he's shooting about one whole three more per game this year. Just Which for is record. good. And he's playing a little less minutes. Also, he went to the Jarrett Jack School of Shooting Threes. When he shoots a three, it looks like it physically pains his whole body to do it. Yes. It's not pretty. Yeah, and if you look at his, um, I, I looked earlier because I was curious at his three-point shooting percentage over his career, and it's very inconsistent. It's a very strange. Early in his career, he shot a bunch. Like when he was with Utah, those first three seasons, he shot a bunch. He was shooting basically four or five every season. So the first season, four point eight. Second season, five point one. Third season, four on the dot. Right. So first season, he shoots thirty-three percent. Second season, thirty-one percent. Third season, 34.5%. Then he goes to Washington for, I think he was there about half a year, 50 or so games. And he shoots about four and a half, uh, sorry, no. He shoots one three a game then. It's significant drop off, but then he's hitting at about a 50% clip. And then all of a sudden, when he gets bounced out of the league and comes back, it dips almost in half. So last year he shot just under three a game. And then this year he's upped it back now to four. But all yeah. the, the percentages... They just they jump so much. It's he's either up two percent 
from the year before, down two or three percent from the year before. It's just, I just don't think his form is conducive of a good three point shot. I think he's trying, but it's just very inconsistent for him. I don't know what it is. I think maybe he doesn't put enough legs into his shot. That's one thing I noticed. Yeah. Uh, he's not really a vertical player by any means. He doesn't seem to get a lot of lift. So um, it seems like it's a lot of arms, which could do with that inconsistency. But, um, yeah, I, again, I give him credit for trying. I specifically asked him about that immediate day, about a shot profile, and I said, are, are you going to improve? Because shooting mid-range like you have at that rate is is bananas. So are you going to improve at the th- or try to shoot more threes and change your shot profile up? And he's like, well, yeah. He's like, yeah, I'm absolutely looking to do that. And he's stuck by it. I mean, a whole. It'd be nice if we saw a little more, but at least he's not overly chucking either. So yes, he's he's done what he said, which is all we can ask for. He's but following through as best he can. Absolutely. Let's get back to Dotson. So, thirty minutes for Dotson enters the starting lineup. His first time starting since some of the weirdness that went on at the end of the year last year under the the lame duck coaching job of Jeff Hornacek. But so that's three straight games of at least thirty minutes for Dotson. 14 points, 20 points, 12 points. He's nailing threes. He's playing well defensively. He's rebounding the basketball. 8, 10, and 7 boards in all those games. We saw him have a 30 and 10 game last year against Miami. We know rebounding is one of his strong suits. So no reason for us not to be encouraged by what he's provided. And I don't think that Fisdale will take him out of the starting lineup anytime soon. I don't know if I asked you, do you think that they go into the Nets game on Monday with that same starting lineup? Um... I don't know. I mean, you, for them to play as well as they did through three against the Warriors, you'd figure there has to be no possible way that Frank doesn't start, right? Like, that's the that's to be the starting point, right? Hardaway's a lock. Frank's a lock. Dotson's a lock in my mind. I, Those three I are think, locks. That, now, I will say this. We both didn't think that Dotson was going to jump right to starting. We did not. On the last pot. We did not. We, we thought, did. okay, like, he's probably going to be – to me, I thought he had jumped Trier at that point to be – because that's what, what I wanted to talk about today but I thought maybe he had jumped Trier in terms of being that scorer off the bench because Burke wasn't on the bench at that point so I thought oh he's like clearly going to take that sixth or seventh man role now because he's been just like you said drilling you know his shots on offense and he's been stout defensively rebounding well but then they threw him right into the starting spot and again he played he missed his first six shots against the Warriors and then he made his last four which was I mean that balanced out that was fun or he made his last five, I think, or something like that. But he, he was more effective in the second half is the point. Um, yeah, I, I got to imagine he's a lock. I mean, you can't you can't take that away from him. Like, you can't give him the chance and then have him do as well as he did and has been doing for four games in a row now and then penalize him for no good reason, basically. So I, I agree with you. I think those three are locks. Um, I'm curious what they, what they do with the four. I feel like the four is going to be... I think they're going to, you know, fuck it. I think they keep the same lineup, man. Okay. Maybe, maybe, like you said, Cantor might slide back in. But I think given how well they competed, I think you got to reward them and give them one more one more go. At least the Von Lane, the Robinson. I think you got to just trot them back out there and see what happens. Cantor seemed pretty despondent after the game and not starting. So I'm just curious how they handle that. Because I do think if you're going to have this guy making a bunch of money in the locker room, and I think they like Ennis Cantor perfectly fine, but you also don't want this guy to be just down all the time. And I think that's part of the side that we don't get to see when you can only speculate on. So I'm curious what they do with a guy like Cantor and what Fisdale thinks of, of what he's going to have to accomplish with a veteran like Cantor to keep him on his good side, basically. I don't know that. And I said this yesterday. And again, I, you know how uh, the Robinson fans have been when we say anything critical. Um, I said yesterday, I just didn't think not only that Robinson wasn't ready, but that we hadn't seen enough from him, both because, one, he kept rolling his ankle, and then, two, when he did play, we haven't really seen him do much in any meaningful minutes. So I didn't think he was really deserving of the start. Yes, his entrance into the starting lineup was a little different than, like, Frank moving to the one or Dotson moving in because it wasn't performance-based. It felt more like, number one, let's give this young guy a chance, and number two, we think that Mitch Robinson matches up better against the Warriors than Ennis Cantor. Right, and... You know, after after a couple of conversations, I didn't necessarily disagree with the matchup aspect of it, but it was more of the merit that I had issue with. I was like, why are we why are we starting him? I understand Cantor has his his drawbacks here, especially defensively, but what are we 
what are we really doing here if, you know, he's basically, you know, Robinson was playing little minutes. He wasn't really all that impactful outside of a couple little fun things like that alley-oop with Frank in the Miami game in garbage time. It's like I just didn't see the the merit of it. But, again, as I started the pot out with, he kind of had a hell of a game. Didn't show up in the box score all the way. I think he had like seven and six. and um, But he was just really active. His hands were on the passing lanes, and he was tipping – or adjusting a lot of shots. He forced three turnovers by my count. So um, if he got the nod now, I wouldn't have any quarrels because I was very clearly wrong and he shut me up swiftly. But I am curious, as you were saying about the Cantor thing, because, I mean, he's a walking double-double, right? He Even off the bench, he almost got one. And it just seems like he's going to be back in the starting lineup, you know, sooner rather than later. I don't know what your vibe on it is, but I don't think that they're going to with it, with the talent that's on this team, I don't think they're going to sit him all year. No, I agree. Like I said, I think Cantor re-enters the lineup on Monday. That's just purely my gut feeling. I have nothing to back that up. And I don't think Fizdale really gave any indication after the game, what he's going to do, but I think we're going to see the Knicks trot out a bunch of different starting lineups this year. And that's why I really have no issue with it. Fizdale's doing what he said he was going to do. I just worry about the veterans on this team they're not long for the Knicks, right? If the Knicks have their dream scenario of landing a Kevin Durant or landing another max free agent, a guy like Ennis Cantor is not going to be on the roster. A guy like Tim Hardaway Jr. likely won't be on the roster because they're going to have to move him if they want to bring in a couple guys. But I do think it's important just from a, a, a leadership perspective and from cultivating a good atmosphere in the locker room to make sure that you don't lose the veterans because we saw Fizdale have issues with Marcus Saul and whether... It was his fault or Gasol's fault is neither here nor there, but it's something that he just should be aware of. That's all I ask because it's it's good to have tough love. It's good to have these guys know they need to play their asses off if they want to get the minutes that they think they deserve, but there's a fine line too. You don't want to have to get to the point where the veterans are all disgruntled and Lance Thomas and Cantor and Hardaway don't feel like they're getting their due. Tim Hardaway has got the green light to shoot whenever, so I doubt that he will ever be upset. He's living in heaven right now. Another decent game from him last night, by the way. We can get into that a little later, but try everything. I said this over the summer. I think I did a pod with Corbo, and I was like, just try everything that you can on this roster. Do whatever you can. I still think the one lineup that I never want to see is the Robinson Cantor pairing, but other than that, chuck out a lineup of starters that is different because the Knicks' nominal starting lineup before was not playing well offensively. The Burke, Hardaway, Nilakina, Thomas, Cantor unit had the fourth worst offensive rating in the NBA of a starting unit. Utah had the worst, by the way. I tweeted that out. I thought that was kind of wild because that's normally a team that we associate with being very good. Try anything that you can. The bench unit had been playing especially well. So why not give those guys an opportunity to play 25 minutes a game? And we've said this forever too. The starters, it's just... It's not as important as who finishes the game. Starting a basketball game, it's a nice token of appreciation. It's normally the best players, but not always. But at the end of the day, it's who closes the game for the team. Who's in there in the fourth quarter in crunch time when it matters? Is it Frank Nulikina? Is it is Cantor going to start but then not play crunch time? We've seen that happen to him a lot in his career because of his defensive woes. But I have no issue with just trying out everything and seeing if it works, and and Fizz has done that so far. I can still complain about some lineup choices, but if he's going to try them, I'll give him credit there. Yeah, I, I think one thing going forward we got to remember, myself included, because we do the tweeting, is um, not I, I, there's always such a shock whenever I see the new starting lineup. Like I get a little bit excited, taken aback. I want to talk about it. It's, it's very... It's fun to talk about it, and I totally understand. And fans want to talk about that, and so do we. That's what makes it enjoyable. Right. And then I, I always have to stop myself, because every time we then take a step back and, and get off of Twitter and we talk about it in this conversation, in this setting, we kind of remember that this is going to be a fluid situation all year. It was a fluid situation in the preseason. It was a fluid situation the first couple of games this year, and it was a fluid situation now. So it's going to be this way the entire year. And, and it's mostly for me what I'm curious about is the in-game adjustments because trying out different lineups to start or to finish is is one thing. But in-game, you should be trying to win the game. Even if you're you know tanking, even if you don't have the talent level, like you should still be making the adjustments that would 
try to win you a game. And that's why we, we were hard on Fizdale earlier in this podcast because it was like, you know, you did your experiment. You, you, you went a little bit mad scientist with the starting lineup, and it worked. It worked. You, you had a nice little balance between the, the first unit and the second unit, and for whatever reason, it worked, right? And the only real knock, because it, it was a night of, of mostly good decisions, it, it stu- and because of that, it stood out so clearly, was Frank not closing the game. So, like, that's, that is that is your point, and it's correct, and we got to just keep that in mind. Like, I, me, myself included, I got to keep that in mind because that's really what it comes down to. It's like that – to me, that's the decision you criticize, not the starting lineup. And I'm speaking mostly to myself because la- I, I did make fun of the, the Cantor sitting thing last night mm-hmm. before the game started. And then, you know, that's – Pales in comparison to, to not playing Frank the entire or most of the fourth quarter. No, I, I get it. We all fall into that. And I tell myself the same thing, too. We can talk about the starters all we want, but it doesn't always matter that much. It's more of the lineup choices, too, right? Because we saw the not normal game for the Knicks because the Heat game was whatever. It was against the Bucks. We saw in that game, Vonley played 19. Dotson played 32. Hazonia played 30. Frank played 35. Trey Burke played 22. Against the Warriors, we saw Vonley 22. Frank 26. Dotson 30. Hazonia 18. Burke 22. So those minutes are essentially the same. It's a matter of how you're deploying those units and who fits best together. That's what it comes down to. And that's the choices that Fisdale has to make. I wonder if this is going to be, and and we've heard Fisdale talk some about analytics, a more analytically driven team, because I find it hard to believe that they wouldn't have some lineup data and say who's been working well together. That always, uh, this is one, not to get on a tangent, but I'm curious what everyone else out there thinks of it and what you think of this, Kyle. I often wonder how much NBA teams, dumb NBA teams, which the Knicks have been for years now, we hope not the case anymore, but we have so much information readily available to us on the internet. I subscribe to a couple websites. I'm on NBA stats every day looking to see oh, what you're your nuggets. Like, how often do these teams go out there and look up this information that they should be able to get for free to find out that maybe this unit isn't working together. That always has baffled me because it seems like sometimes either coaches just don't use that information that's readily available or they just choose to ignore it because of their gut feelings. That's always been something about basketball that's bothered me. I think it's the louder there, to be honest with you. They I just think ignore it for their gut. I, I, yeah, I yeah. think no, because do. because that's the problem with coaching is a lot of it is gut. Like A lot of it is you're in the moment and have to make quick decisions that maybe we don't realize one's the right time to pull somebody one's the right time to put somebody back in the game and that's one thing that we always think is black and white because we're on the outside but I don't want to sit here and say that's one of those things that you have to have played organized basketball or coached organized basketball to understand but it really isn't as simple sometimes as you know oh well we know Frank plays well in the this is just an example because I clearly disagree with what i'm going to use as the example but like no. oh you know we, we would play you know frank in the fourth quarter his lineup data shows that he's much more effective to close out games but you know burke said you know he burke just hit a couple of threes maybe we should ride that hot hand out and see what happens who knows if he's going to take over or not like it's sometimes it's not as black and white as we like to make it seem i guess and the other thing too is we have a lot of free data and you know i am always skeptical of the free data because uh, the godfather of analytics, Daryl Morey, and I'll always say it this exact same way, has refuted publicly that there's anything notable in publicly available defensive data. That's defensive data, though. I'm not even talking about defensive data. I'm oh, no, talking no, no, about no, simple no, on splits. Oh, I, I, I'm aware. I'm aware. But Morey is skeptical of some of the free analytics that are out there. So I under, I'm saying I, I get the gist of what you're saying, but my point more so is to expand upon your main point, which is they have all these analytics readily available. In fact, they have the best analytics readily available because they actually spend money on the analytics. They have stuff that we couldn't even dream of getting access to. They spend millions of dollars not only on accessing this stuff and using this stuff, they have people who get paid lots of money to figure out the best kinds of stuff. And I think that stuff is always given to the coaches. It has to be. There's no possible way in 2018 that that information isn't transferred to them somehow so they do have it i just think a lot of it comes down to it being as simplistic as gut calls and a lot of times it just doesn't work out the way that we'd like it to it appears to me the trend through six games is fizzdale has that information and he's using that information and he's just giving 
you know, guys who have made their bones either last year or over their careers, like a cancer or a Burke, like their fair shake at, you know, getting out there and kind of proving those analytics wrong. Because as we, we, we get deeper into the season out, their responsibilities and their roles have dwindled a little bit. And Cantor, I don't want to make too much of, but mostly the Burke thing. Because all season, that was the point of contention. Was it, it was, Burke's going to break out and have an all-star year, was in our mentions all, all wild summer. Wild take. All summer. A wi- just a wild fucking take. And, we, and it always makes it sound like Burke haters or a player hater because we try to throw a wet blanket on it, but we really genuinely like Burke. Burke was really fun in a down end of the season last year. We really enjoyed watching him and covering him. And he's a really nice guy. You know, at least when I went and spoke to him, he's yeah. really candid. And I am rooting so hard for Trey Burke. The game in Charlotte was one of the best games of the year last year when he dropped Positively. in overtime. It was awesome. It's fantastic. It's just, you know, the, so again, that you know, that Burke versus Frank thing was a point of contention all year, but now it seems like, for, you know, Fisdale was like, all right, fuck it. You guys don't think Frank's the point guard. We won't make him the point guard. We'll throw him at small forward. And he tried that for a few games. And he's just like, all right, but I'm going to keep throwing him back at primary ball handler throughout these games, too. And then you see these little flashes. And then all of a sudden we get to this game. He's like, right, you know, let's just try him at point guard, see what happens. And then he balls out. And it's like, at, at what point, like, what more evidence do you need to see? So I think he had all that data. I think he's just slowly like, okay, well, this is what we have. This is what we're working towards. And I think even the Dotson thing, kind of proves that too because Trier came off the bench guns blazing to start the year right and then Dotson's come in giving you that same offensive impact but he's able to do it on ball off ball he's able to rebound he's able to defend better and I I don't think either one of them is a particularly good passer but it just seems to me like Dotson is is sort of fluid in, in what he does offensively he's like fuck it you need me to cut I'll cut you need me to drive to the rim and create I'll drive to the rim or create. Do you need me to just kick out for a three-point shot? I'll do that. You want me to hit the glass? I'll do that. Oh, I'm guarding Clay. I'll guard Clay. Like, he's doing things well, and it just seems like I, I think Fisdale, my point, is is working backwards to those analytics. Like, I'll give everybody a fair shake who was either hot in the preseason or, you know, hot to close out last season. I'm just going to give everybody that that fair and that shot to, to really separate themselves. And if they don't, I know what's up. I know Frank's a better point guard, mm-hmm. and I think he's sort of getting back into it. I hope so anyway. I don't want to make too much out of one start, but just judging off of how we've gone through six games, that's sort of the sense that I'm getting. It just feels blatantly obvious watching the games that he's the best guy for the job right now, and even if he still has much to learn, which we know, it's the perfect opportunity to give him every chance. I really enjoy watching the Knicks play a great team like this, and seeing the guys like Neil Aquino play well, because isn't that the type of player you need to beat these great teams? What do we know about the NBA? You need to shoot threes, and you need to be long, rangy, switchable defenders. That's Frank Neil Aquino to a T. He is a long-range defender. He can defend one through three, basically. He can force turnovers in ways that are we haven't seen in a long time from the point guard position in New York. Even a guy like Dotson. A longer, taller, big, strong wing that can shoot threes. To another extent, Tim Hardaway Jr., a wing that can shoot threes. You can squint and see these guys playing on a really, really good Knicks team, whether that's off the bench or if they progress at all, whether that's a starting role. These are the kind of guys you need to take down the Warriors of the world, the Bostons, the Torontos, the Houstons. This is how you win. If you put Porzingis back next to these guys, that's how you secure a good lineup in the NBA and progress and beat these teams. It's by being able to defend. It's by being able to switch on all sorts of pick and rolls and it's shooting threes and and getting to the rim. That's what you need to do to beat these teams. And that's why I'm glad to see some of these young guys step up in a game like this. That's a marquee matchup in the garden against the best team NBA's ever seen. I think my last thing on Frank is I just don't understand the, the bust comments or some of the hate that gets thrown his way or some of the people that don't see any impact from his game. I think that's what gets me. Like, if you wanted to argue about, you know, him being a, a point guard in a more traditional sense or you're worried about some of his scoring tools, that's fine, and I understand that. because in, But at the same time, we live in 2018. Basketball's progressed where, like to your point about the Celtics, the Celtics 
starters and and even probably their sixth or seventh men, they don't really have positions. It's just guys that just go out there and fill different roles on offense and defense because they can switch a lot of things on offense and on defense. Frank is exactly that kind of guy. Like you can play Frank at multiple positions on offense and multiple positions on defense, but his strengths where he's more natural is still as, as the one as the point guard, as the primary ball handler. And if you disagree with that, that's fine, but you should be able to disagree with that and then still go, well, Frank should play 30 to 35 minutes a night because his impact is tremendous. That's what I'm always split on. It's because the people that are out on him as point guard are out on him as a player, and I don't understand that part of it. It's simple. It's simple why people are out on him as a player. You know why? It's because he's not that good of a scorer, and for some people, that's enough to consider someone a bust. And and you know me better than anybody. I always come back to with some of the analytics that get thrown around a little bit too much, and I go, okay, but the point of basketball is scoring. you got to be able to score better than the other guy, better than the other this. team. And I do say this, and I stand by it. But there comes times when people's impact is so tremendous that, you know, and in other aspects of it, that that's why I said if Frank's able to score just a little bit and give you basic playmaking and then elite defending, like, you, you should clearly see the impact in a player like that. So... It's it's very silly to me. Um, hopefully, this is the start of something nice now with Frank. Hopefully, they just give him the reins and, and rip it and let him run. And then uh, he can leave, no doubt, and we can move on. But somebody else that we can touch on real quick before we close up here, who's leaving, no doubt, is Tim Hardaway Jr. Aha. Aha. Our guy. That's did our you put, Did guy. you put your cape on? My cape's always my, on. It's, yeah, it's my always on. My cape's flapping in the wind right now, so it's like I feel Doc really good Ox, about this. It's like brain chipped into my back. Like, mm. it doesn't come off. Nice. That's how it works. Nice. nice. That was a nice topical reference, too. You think Spider-Man so? was a great Yeah, kid. 2004 yeah. Spider-Man 2? Yeah. Which I so, saw in theaters as a young kid? Spider-Man 1 and 2 was really good in theaters, all right? Spider-Man 3, when they tried to do uh, Venom with Topher Grace, was just a, a miserable failure. Perhaps the worst casting I've ever seen in my entire life. It It could not have been worse. It could not have been worse. Painful to watch. But anyway, so I'm, I'm gonna I'm just gonna set the scene for you because I want you to really lead on this Tim Hardaway train here because we still we hear the comments we still hear the hate no matter what I post or any one of us posts about Tim Hardaway Jr. there are just an army of, re- of people ready to yell at us about how he's terrible and how he sucks. So he had 24 points last night. This is against the Warriors, okay? The Golden State Warriors. This e. is the the State Warriors. The defending champions, the back-to-back defending champions who are likely to win a third this season with all their stars in their prime, arguably the greatest point guard of all time in Steph Curry, arguably the greatest shooter of all time in Steph Curry. Um, so these Warriors, okay, we, we all know them. So he had 24 points last night, 9 of 21 shooting, which you might think, listeners to this podcast, that I'm now proving your point, that he had an inefficient night. But may I remind you, that he also shot 12 threes. And in context, shooting more than half your shots from three matters. And it makes you being inefficient or slightly inefficient as a whole, it, it makes it sort of irrelevant. So he went four of 12 from three, which not fantastic. He's been pretty hot to start the year. But again, Warriors are a tough matchup, both on you know both sides of the ball. He had uh, two rebounds, four assists for those who say he has tunnel vision, a couple turnovers. But as a whole, um, especially defensively, from, and I, this is still very fresh in my mind, having just watched the game. He was engaged pretty much the entire way through. I mean, he was matched up on Clay or uh, Iguodala, a couple you know, those wing guys. And I just felt like he did a great job. He switched when he was supposed to switch. He, I mean, he was covering. He was contesting. Um, I didn't really see him get caught sleeping. I mean, certain times he was out of position. But again, defending this team, um, even for the best defending teams, is a pain in the fucking ass. So I thought Timmy did just fine last night, and that matches up with, to me, the effort he's given all season. So, Matt, can you please tell me what you saw from Timmy last night, what you enjoyed, and uh, why this continues to prove us right being in the minority with Tim Hardaway Jr.? It's the decision-making that we want to see from him improve, right? So I really enjoyed the one pass he had. He drove the lane, drove around a screen, got into the lane, made a beautiful pass to Frank in the corner. Frank nails the corner three. Correct. That is all we're asking from him. We're not asking much. We're not asking him to be some crazy passer, but to be more than a scorer is what we're asking for. Mike Cortez over at the Knicks World wrote a great piece this week about 
Hardaway saying that he wants to be more than just a costly scorer for this team because that seems to be what has defined him. And I know we've talked about this a lot, so I'll make this brief. You can still watch Tim Hardaway in a game like this and see him being a playable cog in a matchup. I'm skeptical even even as I sit here and defend him. I'm skeptical that Tim Hardaway Jr. could even be a third option on a title contending team because of the nature of his game, because he struggles defensively, because of his shot selection. I wonder how he would perform if he didn't have the ball in his hands all the time when he was relying on other guys to set him up. I think he would benefit if he was able to get in a mindset where he would know that he would do a lot more spot-up shooting rather than off the dribble and stuff like that. But for this team, he makes smart decisions in the pick-and-roll. He's shooting about 42%, so even 9 of 21 is 43%. It's pretty much in line with what he's done all year. That's fine. The 33% from three isn't great, but he's been better from three this year. That's fine. He's shooting over 20 shots a game, which is pretty incredible. I looked this up right now because I was curious. There have been five Knicks in the history of the franchise, if I did my search query correctly, which I believe I did, that have shot over 20 shots per game. Do you want to guess or do you want me to tell you? In a full season, obviously. I, I would just like you to tell me. This is going pretty swimmingly. So Richie Guerin is one. Bernard King. Mello did it twice. Ewing did okay. it twice. And then Bob McAdoo did it in 76-77. So I don't know if he'll keep shooting 20 shots a game. And it depends on if Porzingis ever returns this season, how the rest of it goes out. But he's being asked to do a whole bunch for this team. And there's no reason for us to think that he's been anything less than good, which is what I've said. And I'm going to continue to say unless he all of a sudden goes in a slump for an extended period of time, which we can't rule out because he's streaky. But as a three-point shooter, as anything else that he can provide for this team in terms of off the dribble, in the catch and shoot, I think he's performed quite admirably. He's, he's basically doing, to your point, all the things that we bitched about he's doing. He's been more engaged defensively. He's been better defensively. Again, and I have to say this every time, because when you talk about basketball in 2018, whether it's in this medium or it's on Twitter or any kind of social media, you always have to put a thousand disclaimers into it. I'm not saying that Tim Hardaway Jr. is a great defender or an all-NBA defender or he's going to win defensive player of the year or that he's even a, a truly stout defender at all times. I am saying that he's been passable which is miles better than where he was last year. Last year, he was lazy. He was lost. He didn't rotate well. He didn't switch well. You know, he did a lot of other things well on offense. His decision-making was questionable. But defensively, he's been engaged this year. And that's all you can ask for a guy who's been very vocal about stepping up into a leadership role. And with a team full of young guys, having a leader who's slightly older than he is, uh, than they are, that matters when you see somebody who's still entering their prime going, you know what, I'm going to step up and lead this team and I'm going to try my best on both ends of the floor. So I don't I don't necessarily get the hate when he's clearly hauling ass and trying to improve on all the things that we want him to improve on. You can't just keep spitting the same narratives every week and be angry about it when that's not what's happening during the game. You just please watch the games with us. Look at Actually, look at Timmy. The, don't look at the ball on defense possessions. Just look where Timmy is and what Timmy's doing. Do this for the next couple of weeks because I'm going to keep pounding this point until he falls off the wagon here. He's playing good defense. He's trying. He's engaged. Sometimes he's going to get beat. Sometimes he's going to be out of position because he's not a great defender. But he's giving the effort. He's His head's been on a swivel for the most part. He's trying. And to Matt's point, too— He's at least looking at other options that offensively where he's kicking out. He doesn't just have his head down the entire time. So I don't really know what you guys want from a shooting guard in the NBA, but he's absolutely trying. And he's given you all the requisite points, which is really his only job as a shooting guard. But he's also now looking to pass a little bit more and defend pretty well, too. He's not going to ever make that leap. Maybe he does, and I'd love to be wrong because this would work out beautifully for the Knicks. But he's not going to make this leap to become a superstar or even a real star in this league. But... For a 20-plus point-per-game score to be able to pass effectively at times, who plays at the two, and to be able to defend the way he's defended through, again, very small sample of six games, it's encouraging. I don't know what else you guys want from him. I, I really, truly do not know, but he, he's fine. He really, truly is fine. Before we get out of here, have you heard Frank Nulikina's new nickname that we can't say, so I'll let Steph Curry say it for us? I, 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 yeah, uh, 
play it, but I heard it once this morning. Okay, I'll play it. You know what, what Frank uh, Nicolina Nicolina is that how you pronounce it? Uh, where he how he played tonight is obviously showed a lot of promise. It's the best thing I've ever heard in my entire life. It's he said it two different ways, and it <laughs> and and it did it and it didn't get better the second time, and he got no help from uh, the who was the interviewer? Was it, was it Rebecca, Rebecca Harlow? Yeah, it was, it was Rebecca Harlow. Harlow. Okay. And I didn't want to say the wrong person. So uh, Rebecca just smiled and laughed it off instead of correcting him, which, uh, please, Rebecca, just steer him in the right direction. I, I don't know. Do you think this was intentional? No. But also maybe yes. I can't take it. <laughs> that, yep. Because At first I said, no, there's no way. And then I saw the video of them trolling Fergie last night to a remix of her horrid national anthem from last year's All-Star game. Oh, but and let's I thought, all blame Draymond. Did you see it? Was, isn't her husband like Josh Duhamel or something? I didn't know that. And her, he was her like, stri- oh, Draymond yeah. Green. Yeah, he call, called him a prick. And then uh, Draymond had... They, they actually had fun with it today. Uh, he, Her husband tweeted out, well, now I know better than to mess with the Warriors. NBA Twitter doesn't play around. Right. And then Draymond commented under it and was just like, it was like, we weren't making fun of her. It was just funny. Like, we were just having fun with it. So it seems like there's actually no bad blood. Okay. And I think That's and fair. I think as of like 20, 30 minutes ago, Fergie posted something about it, like making light of it too. So I think uh, everybody's in good spirits now. I, I think that sort of died down. But my point here is maybe it was intentional because they are in full troll mode. They know that they could say whatever to whoever, whenever, and nobody's going to be able to do anything about it, either on the court or off the court, because on the court, you're not going to stop them. And off the court, you want no parts of it to DeMarcus Cousins or Draymond Green. Um, so they they are just supremely confident. So I'm not sure. I don't think he has any reason to slight Frank. I, I do. It probably wasn't an accident. And as you know, and as a person who on the live draft show that we had when we drafted Frank, I butchered his name. <laughs> so, and and after uh, Reed, our, our managing editor Reed Goldsmith yelled at me privately in a DM and was just like, "That's not how you say his name," because I tried to say that French kid because I didn't want to butcher it again. And Reed yelled at me. So I've never gotten it wrong ever again. But I can see why it would be a difficult name. It is a wild spelling. So I can see why. That's all he was trying to do. I think he was just trying to enunciate the T. He was. And, yeah. and it just, it came out. He got lost in the middle of the word. Like, he just it, got lost. It, it sounded like a couple of Gs instead. Yeah. <laughs> and and it, it, it did, uh, it, I'll let you guys do the math, but it positively did not go the way that he was hoping it would go. And his second attempt was no better. I got to have this on tap. So anytime Frank does anything, I'll just play the step video. Just have, like, the two-second <laughs> clip. I'm just going to play, yes! And then play the step video. <laughs> it's hysterical, though. So that, that, that was cracking me up this morning. I think I've looped it, like, 20 or 30 times. It just cracks me up. All right, so Knicks-Warriors, was it was fun. A lot of takeaways, and the Knicks will be back in action next week. You guys will listen to this on Monday, so the Knicks will be playing again tonight. But, Kyle, before we get out of here, anything to plug this weekend, this week? What do we got coming up? So just make sure you guys, the, the big thing we're trying to do right now is our Twitch channel. We're trying to do a lot of the pregame and postgame shows there. It's been a little inconsistent. We're still trying to get it up and running, but make sure you subscribe. It's twitch.tv slash the Knicks wall, just fully spelled out. Um yeah, they're just we're basically doing a lot of two uh, 2K shows there. It's the same thing with the periscopes. I think some people have been hesitant to click because the periscopes, you guys are able to ask a lot of questions uh, seamlessly seamlessly through your Twitter app. But Twitch operates the same way. There's a, there's a channel there. You could just ask us all the questions. We, we've gotten more traction of late, but make sure you guys do that. Um, it, it's a lot of fun for everybody. You guys get to watch a simulated game, uh, a preview of the night's matchup, and We'll just shoot the shit. We'll talk about what we hope to see. We'll talk about the actual game we're playing in and a whole lot more. So do that, please. Make sure you you should be subscribed to this pod if you're listening. If you're not, make sure you subscribe. Uh, make sure you give us a five-star rating. That helps us continue to do what we do here. And the last thing, besides checking out all of our wonderful daily and original content that we have coming out on thenixwall.com, is to keep an eye out for some merchandise happenings. Uh, the Lobinson shirt was a big hit, and we're pretty happy about it. And we have more things of that nature to come soon. So I don't want to tease much more than that, but that's on Public. The shop is the Knicks wall. So make sure you go there. Uh, I think we have a tweet pinned with our uh, shop link there. So make sure you guys just check that out. We got a lot of good stuff. Um, if you've been on the Trey Burke bandwagon and I, you have realized your mistake and you want to hop over to the Frank Nilakina bandwagon we have tons 
of French Prince or Frankie Smokes, Neil Aquino merchandise available in the shop as well. But that's about all that I have. Fantastic. One in five Knicks, but it's been mostly fun. So It's been mostly fun. The only game that wasn't fun was the Miami the game. Miami Everything game. else has been fun. And the stretch in Milwaukee, but they had the nice comeback at the end. So either way, get some nice matchups next week. Knicks may be able to win a couple games, get a couple in the win column. But until then, we'll talk to you guys middle of the week. All right. Take it easy, guys.